Before we begin, I want to remind everyone that we are currently raising money for the Trevor Project. It's a charity for LGBTQ plus teenagers and young adults who are dealing with coming outs and finding themselves and the mental health aspect that comes with that and possibly not being accepted in your community any longer. It's an incredible, incredible charity. And if you want to support, there will be a thing to the right of the video if you're on desktop and below the video if you're on mobile. Thanks again, everyone. And let's get right into the video. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the cold cases or unsolved cases from every state series. Tonight, we are diving into three very strange cases out of Missouri. I want to thank everyone who submitted a case, and let's just jump right into it. Ricky, as some outlets have put it, wasn't a very remarkable man. He was living on welfare, had dropped out of high school, and was unmarried, though it said he had at least four children. Ricky also suffered from a chronic heart and lung condition that was initially believed to play a part in his death, however that soon was shown not to be the case. It was just after noon on the 30th of June 1999 that Ricky's body was discovered by a woman driving along Highway 367 in Missouri. Fingerprints were taken of the man who was so badly decomposed he couldn't be identified in any other way, and it was determined to be Ricky McCormick of St. Louis, a town only 25 miles from where he was discovered. Ricky was 41 years old and, as we said, not necessarily known in the community. His record showed numerous charges of drugs and one charge of sexual assault to a minor, a crime he served 11 months for, though his sentence was three years. The death of a more or less unknown man was said not to be all that shocking. A 2011 article stated, So far, so grim. Just another murder in a country that counts violent deaths by the thousands. But once it was determined that he was murdered, the investigation took quite the turn. The investigation showed that the official cause of death was a slash to his throat. Police knew then that they had a murder on their hands. Suspects were non-existent, however. Unfortunately, when it comes to low-income or homeless people, they're not given much thought. As a matter of fact, Ricky's family hadn't even reported him missing around the time he was killed. The case sat basically untouched, gathering dust, until the FBI published two notes on their site that were connected to the case. These two letters were found in the pocket of Ricky the day he was killed, but weren't released to the public until 2011. Following this, the world took Ricky's story and ran with it. With the FBI asking for help in cracking this code, many online began to theorize and work together in hopes of figuring out what Ricky had written. Numerous forum posts and even websites were created to decipher this code, which, to this day, has not seen much progress. The notes were met with some criticism, though. While the 2011 article I mentioned before stated, Mr. McCormick's family said he enjoyed devising ciphers as a boy and continued to experiment with them into adulthood. Other outlets say this isn't the case. A 2012 article in the Riverfront Times stated that some family members believed it wasn't a code, mentioning that Ricky couldn't read well or even write more than his name. Ricky's mother, Frankie, stated, They told us the only thing in his pockets was the emergency room ticket. 
Now, 12 years later, they come back with this chicken scratch shit. The only thing he could write was his name. He didn't write no code. Don Olson, one of the investigators, continues to say different. In that same article, he stated, They are done in more of a format of something written to oneself than something written to someone else. And makes mention of how some things are circled or marked out, maybe indicating a to-do list. Another man, Dan Brown, the author of The Lost Symbol and The Da Vinci Code, was consulted, and he says he believes it to be an unsolved cipher. Many continue to bring up Ricky's illiteracy, though, and through this comes what I believe to be one of the most likely theories. It's possible that Ricky was a courier, most likely for drugs and maybe weapons. Ricky would have slipped under the radar easily and wouldn't have aroused suspicion. Furthermore, if he was illiterate as these reports say, I do believe it would have been strange for him to have notes like these. So, the notes could have been between the supplier and customer. Ricky, being the middleman, may not have even known what the coded messages were saying. That, of course, is still being debated, and at the core of this, we have a man who was killed for seemingly no reason. If he was connected to some kind of drug trade, it's possible it was that that did him in, though it isn't too far-fetched to think he was simply targeted because he was lower class. Too often, homeless men and women are killed simply because they're easy targets who often no longer have ties to family or friends. If you do believe you have an idea on how to break this code and get the answers we need, you can follow the link in the top of the description to submit a tip straight to the FBI. There is currently a large reward out for anyone who can decipher the code. The St. Louis Jane Doe is a case I find incredibly difficult to talk about. She's often referred to as Hope, so that's what I'll refer to her as. It begins on the 1st of March, 1983, when the decapitated body of a young black girl was found in the basement of a vacant apartment building. An article from that date states, The child, believed to be 10 years old, was naked from the waist down. Further, disturbing details include the bloody yellow v-neck she wore and the fact that her hands were bound behind her back. One crime scene photo shows how tightly they were bound, indicating she'd put up a fight beforehand. The cord that was used looked to be the length of a jump rope. The case, unfortunately, came to a standstill nearly as soon as it began. Sergeant Lloyd Huggins said in the same article that no one had reported a young girl missing. Canvassing the neighborhood looking for answers as to an identification led to no new evidence either. A later autopsy revealed that the young girl had been sexually assaulted. Many details about Hope's case were released to the public, including the fact that she'd suffered from spina bifida occulta. She was believed to be 4'1 to 5'6". Her DNA, fingerprints, and even footprints have been put into the system, though nothing from that has come up. Ten months after her discovery, she was buried at Washington Park Cemetery on the 2nd of December, 1983. Later, the police went out on a limb and sent out the sweater Hope was wearing to a psychic, but no word ever came from them. Also, the sweater was never returned, so it's presumed to have been lost in the mail. Four other girls have been rolled out as IDs in this case, and so far, there have been no large developments. In 2013, Hope's remains were exhumed. This was after they'd found out that her remains had been misplaced 
and weren't found until June. This is said to be on the hands of the cemetery for their poor record-keeping. Nevertheless, she was exhumed and her isotope tests were performed to determine where she lived a majority of her life. While this narrowed it down, it wasn't as helpful as the police hoped. The places they believed she could have lived included Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, Tennessee, North Carolina, or South Carolina. Along with this, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children have stated that she could have been from more Midwestern, mid-Atlantic states, including Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Indiana, or West Virginia. Hope was buried again, this time in the Garden of Innocence at the Calvary Cemetery. After all these years, only one man has come up as a suspect, a man named Vernon Brown. He was born October 1st, 1953, and said to have an incredibly troubled childhood. In 1973, he dropped out of high school and was convicted of molesting a 12-year-old girl, leading him to spend four years in prison in Indiana. Upon his release, another little girl, Kimberly Campbell, who was nine, went missing, only to turn up in a vacant apartment building that happened to be owned by Vernon's grandparents in Indiana. She'd been raped and strangled, but there was not enough evidence to convict Vernon at the time, so her case is too unsolved. In 85, Vernon moved to St. Louis and lived under a new name, Thomas Turner. He was living with his wife and stepchildren. On the 24th of October in 1986, he abducted a nine-year-old girl named Janet Perkins. Vernon was convicted of her rape and murder, following his stepchildren testifying that they'd heard the screams of Janet coming from their basement after Vernon lured her into his home. While serving his time, Tom Carroll, a homicide detective, often spoke with him to get information about any of the other murders or rapes he'd committed, including Hope's case. Vernon never confessed to any more crimes and was killed by lethal injection in May of 2005. If you believe that you have any information that can link Vernon to Hope's case or any information that can help lead police in the right direction, don't hesitate to report it. There are links in the description you can use to submit tips to the FBI, or you can call the St. Louis tip line at 1-866-371-8477. From what I've been told, many people know who took Justin's life back in October of 1999. With that said, I have to present facts first. Justin was just 14 years old in October while living in Seligman, Missouri. Seligman is a very small town with just over 1,000 people as of this recording. Seligman is a small town with just over 1,000 people as of this recording, but it seems to be full of secrets that, for some reason, can't be uncovered. It begins on the 8th of October. That night, Justin was spending time with his girlfriend, who happened to be his next-door neighbor. One article published just weeks after his death stated that her home was only a hundred or so feet from his home, and it's there we begin to see some very damning evidence. Around 4 a.m. on the 8th of October, Justin was seen being chased out of his girlfriend's house by her father. This was just two hours before the determined T-1000 
TOD. Justin's body wasn't discovered until the following day, October 9th, when a young man came across his body, which had been thrown by a southbound train nearly 300 feet. The same article we mentioned moments ago makes mention of some very interesting discoveries. An autopsy found no evidence of drugs or alcohol in Justin's system, and the train's whistle would have awakened if the boy had simply fallen asleep on the tracks. Furthermore, it was later determined that Justin didn't commit suicide. Barry County Sheriff Mick Epperly was interviewed for the article and said, The position of the body on the tracks, however, between the rails, not across them, is consistent with someone being placed on tracks, not with someone jumping in front of a train. Just a day following this article being published, another one was published, saying a suspect was being questioned, though they did not state who it was. With that said, the police did mention that it was likely more than one person was involved. Just over a year after Justin's death, his father Timmy seemingly tried to take matters into his own hands. The article reads, 16 months after Justin Hocutt's mangled body was found on a set of railroad tracks near his Barry County home, his father sits in an Arkansas jail cell, accused of taking the law into his own hands. Prosecutors have accused Timmy Hocutt, 36, of firing a shotgun Sunday night into the home of people he believes may be connected with his son's death in October of 1999. These individuals were never named, as it is still an ongoing investigation. I, of course, can't condone this type of vigilante justice, though I can't condone what Justin's family allegedly went through after his death either. In a 2009 news broadcast done by KSPR, the family of Justin claimed the whole town knew who took Justin's life, but for the past 10 years, and possibly even now, they were threatened with violence if they ever spoke out about it. The harassment stopped when they moved from Seligman. This year will mark 21 years since Justin was senselessly beaten and left on the tracks to die. It is time someone came forward with information. You can call the Barry County tip line at 417-847-3121 or the Barry Lawrence Crime Stoppers at 1-888-635-8477. I want to give a quick thank you to everyone who took some time out of their day evening or afternoon to either listen or watch this video. I really, really appreciate that. If you want to support the channel and get videos a day in advance, you can become a patron or a channel member. Both of those links will be in the description below. If you also want to support the channel a little bit more and get yourself something really cool, head over to the Teespring store. You can pick up hoodies, t-shirts, mugs, stickers, all kinds of really awesome stuff. Link is also in the description. Thanks again, everyone, for the incredible support. And as always, take care of yourself, take care of each other, and as always, stay safe out there.